2021 has been a year of bold climate commitments from governments and business, culminating recently in Glasgow, where world leaders met for COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, to recommit to the goals of the Paris Agreement to limit global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Hello, I'm David Hilgen. Welcome to Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. Amid a persistent worldwide crisis over COVID-19, leaders and activists continue to sound the alarm about the existential crisis of climate change. Our guest today is David Edsey, Climate Director, Technical Underwriting for Zurich North America. David recently provided testimony at the House Select Committee on Climate Crisis hearing, Good for Business, Private Sector Perspectives on Climate Action. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Good to be here. So, David, uh, this was your first time speaking at a congressional hearing. Uh, were you nervous? What were your expectations that day? Yeah, you know, surprisingly, I, I wasn't that nervous once I got into the hearing. I'd been a litigator for about 15 years before joining Zurich. So once I got in there, I just kind of went into lawyer mode. That being said, I mean, I, I think leading up to it, I, I didn't sleep that well for a night or two because I kept running through the questions and answers in my head. But uh, um, but I, I had seen an, enough of these hearings on TV that I, I had a good idea what to expect. And, and, and it kind of went according to what I had in mind as far as expectations. Interesting. I enjoyed watching it. It's about an hour and a half long, as I recall. I want to talk a little more about the hearing, then pivot to a new report from Zurich on the gap on climate action explores the actions that both business leaders and policymakers should be taking to help achieve a net zero economy. First off, what was the key message you wanted to convey during your testimony in Washington? The subject of the hearing was what are business leaders' perspective on climate and what are business leaders' perspective on what actions government should be taking in response to climate change. So the main message that I wanted to deliver was that Zurich as one of the largest you know, United States PNC commercial insurers is really exposed to increased risks from climate change and that we really take the science behind climate change seriously and especially the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that was recently issued that in no uncertain terms states that you know, the world needs to reach net zero emissions by 2050 in order to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I wanted to de deliver that message that Zurich and really the entire insurance industry really takes the science behind climate change seriously, that Zurich in our own operations is making commitments to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions as are a number of other corporations. But in order to really tackle the climate crisis, we need decisive governmental action to, to lead the way to the net zero. Well, I noticed during the hearing, we didn't get a lot of pushback, but in, in retrospect, I think Zurich's position was fairly unimpeachable. There wasn't much to, to criticize there. So what do you hope happens next with regard to climate action? Well, I think the foundation of a, a net zero economy that we need to reach by 2050 is going to be a clean electric grid, which is you know, going to be supplied by wind, 
solar, battery storage, uh, in addition to, to nuclear, hydro, and geothermal energy sources. Um, and, and that's really critical because we need that clean grid to meet the increased electricity demand from the transportation, building, and industrial sectors that are going to be electrifying themselves. Uh -huh. So and, unless the electric grid is cleaned up, I mean, electrifying those other sectors is all for naught. So what, what I really hope happens is that governments around the world, in addition to the U.S., put in place clean electricity standards for our electric utilities to set targets to get to, you know, 70 or 80 percent renewable energy by, by 2030 and, and 100 percent by 2050. Why does the private sector care about this? Because climate change, you know, it, it poses a tremendous risk to our economy. The global average temperature has already risen 1.1 degree Celsius. And that's across the whole world. So over land, it's risen about 1.5 degrees Celsius. And as a result of just that 1.1 degrees Celsius increase over pre-industrial times, we're already seeing droughts across much of the Western United States, which is bringing you know, increased wildfires and, and potential water shortages. You know, looking at Lake Mead, which supplies water to about 20 million people in the southwestern United States, that, that lake is at historically low levels. You know, we're seeing inland storms, which are bringing more heavy rain, leading to flooding. We've seen that in Tennessee and Central Europe and other parts of the globe. We're seeing these new freaky weather disturbances. This atmospheric river, which uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in, in October, it dropped a half a foot of rain and, and brought 50 mile an hour wind gusts. Um, we're seeing a heat dome which settled over the Seattle and Portland area in, in June that brought 100 plus temperatures for days. We're, and we're seeing sea level rise. So so all of these, these climate shocks are having a, a devastating effect um, and will continue to do so on our, on our economy. Um, you know, just to add to this, I mean, the, uh, the, the World Economic Forum recently issued a report and it concluded that half of the world's total GDP is moderately or highly dependent on nature and its services and so is exposed to risks from nature loss. So half of our economy is vulnerable to the effects of climate change, not, not only immediate weather shocks, but the chronic results of climate change, meaning, you know, drought and water supply depletion, biodiversity loss, ecosystems collapse. So our economy is, is really vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And that's why, you know, businesses are concerned. It really has been a crazy year for severe weather. I do, all the things you mentioned, I remember reading about them. When Hurricane Ida uh, made its way across the country, dumped 11 inches of rain in one night in my hometown in New Jersey. I mean, we got water in the basement for the first time in 20 years. Which brings us to uh, what I mentioned earlier, the Zurich report called Closing the Gap on Climate Action. It was released in September. It's available on Zurich.com right now. It's a pretty long report, about 36 pages. So a lot of people, even if they're deeply concerned about climate change, may not have read it from front to back. Start with what is the gap that needs to be closed? 
the gap that's in the title of the report really it addresses the difference between the rhetoric on climate both from companies and governments and the action that's required to get us to net zero by the middle of this century. In part, David, that rhetoric refers to the, the 2015 Paris Agreement, um, where 195 countries agreed to commit to holding global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius, hopefully 1.5 degrees. But we need action to back up those commitments in the Paris Agreement. And so that's the gap that, that yeah. this report addresses and you know the report starts out really by assessing the progress that has been made on climate but also addressing the deficits or challenges basically the gap right so some of the good things that are noted in the report i mean renewable energy sources currently account for about 31 percent of global electricity generation amongst developed nations but still you know 50 percent of electricity generation is provided by fossil fuels. In the United States, it's closer to 60%. So that's a gap that needs to be closed. Another positive development that the report mentions is that electric vehicle sales in 2020 increased 41% to 3 million new car sales of electric vehicles. So that's about 4.6% of all new car sales around the world. But EVs still only represent 1% of the global car stock in 2020. So there's a big gap that needs to be reduced there. And there's other examples of gaps that need to be bridged in the Zurich report. So that's interesting. But for companies, for business leaders, what's the key message that they can take out of this report? The middle part of the report really focuses on the inside out and the outside in effect of climate change on companies. So what am I talking about? Um, inside out refers to a company's greenhouse gas emissions, basically, okay. both, both in its operations, in its purchased electricity or energy, and in the emissions in its supply chain. So that those are you know, routinely referred to as scope one, two, and three emissions. The report discusses various, you know, methodologies or frameworks that companies need to consider to develop their own net zero plans, including things like how to address difficult to abate emissions through purchasing carbon offsets or carbon credits. Now, the outside in refers to the increased risks that companies are now facing as a result of climate change. So this part of the report discusses basically how companies need to adapt their operations in order to remain viable in this new environment of a changing climate, and really how companies need to incorporate climate change into their enterprise risk management strategies. Well, it's good that uh, business leaders, companies have a seat at the table because it, uh, they are critical to this, this challenge. But Let's talk about policy recommendations in the report for governments, local, global, what have you. Yeah, yeah. So the fourth part of the report really, it, it gets into what Zurich sees as, as the, the fundamental public policy initiatives needed to address climate change, um, you know, to get us to net zero by the middle of the century. So the first public policy recommendation that sort of recommends is putting a price on carbon. We feel it, it's necessary to decouple 
economic prosperity from carbon emissions. And economic incentives need to be aligned to make that happen. And, and we see the best way to do that is to put a, a tax or a price on carbon emissions or institute like a cap and trade system. There's a social cost of burning fossil fuels that has been borne by society. There's the health risks, and now there's the global warming risks that society has subsidized as resulting from burning fossil fuels. So what we're saying is, is that cost of burning fossil fuels needs to be embedded in the emissions themselves. So rather than society paying the cost of those consequences, you know, through increased health care and through uh, increased methods to build resiliency to climate change or, or, or to offset those emissions otherwise from climate change, that cost should be paid by the emitter of the, the greenhouse gas emissions. And that will then incentivize a transition to non-carbon emitting power sources. So David, that's the first policy recommendation Zurich makes in the report. The second area that Zurich's advocating is for governments to set standards for companies' climate-related financial disclosures. And the idea here is really we're billions of investment dollars that are accumulating to support the industries and the technologies that are needed to move the world to a net zero economy. But there needs to be transparency, clarity, you know, and standardization of data so that investors can avoid the risks of greenwashing or the misallocation of those funds. Investors want to have clarity that if they're going to invest in a company that is going to, you know, support the transition to net zero, that it's actually doing the things they say. And so that's why we need this standardization of data. The third thing that Zurich is urging in the report as far as public policy is really for their governments to innovate financing approaches that will leverage public sector funds, really further incentivize private sector funds or investment. You know, right now the IEA is estimating the global annual clean energy investments need to triple to reach about four trillion a year by 2030. So David, can I stop? Can I stop? What sure. is the IEA? That's the International Energy Agency. Okay. So, so basically their conclusion, is we need to step up the investment into clean energy solutions to get us to net zero. And it really needs to happen within the next 10 years because that's the critical decade here to tackle climate change. What Zurich sees is that one way to catalyze that investment is for governments to create programs. I mean, one example could be, you know, sovereign green bonds. In World War II, they had the war bonds, right? And and, and the public, you know, was incentivized and, and purchased those bonds. Something similar can be done now. There's already a market is developing for private green bonds, but we're recommending the governments around the world do the same. I want to get back to what you said uh, a few moments ago when you talked about carbon pricing. I know that's sometimes a controversial uh, topic. Why is that so controversial? Is it the word tax that is associated with it? I think so, David. Nobody wants to be taxed more. But you know, this is a, a, a urgent crisis that the world has never faced anything like before. And so we really see it as a, a necessary way basically to tip the scales 
towards, you know, moving towards a net zero economy, um, create the incentives to, to move towards less carbon intensive solutions. Otherwise, you know, voluntarily, there's a lot happening. Many companies are making commitments to voluntarily reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, but obviously not all of them are, and we really need to get everybody on board. So Zurich sees the best way to get everybody on board is to, to put price on carbon. Well, uh, I'm glad you brought Zurich back into this uh, conversation. Why, why then does Zurich care so much about slowing climate change and building climate resilience? Zurich is committed to being the most responsible and impactful insurance company in the world. Um, and, and that's with respect to our employees, our customers, and our communities. And, and all of those stakeholders for the remainder of this century are vulnerable to the biggest risk, which is climate change. Yeah. Uh, you know, the last seven years, David, has been have been yeah. the hottest on record. But unfortunately, you know, those last seven years are probably, well, will be the coolest compared to the next 30 years or possibly the remainder of the century. So it's going to keep getting hotter until we drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the next 10 years are really critical, as I stated previously, to put in place public policies and investments to get us on the road to net zero. The big catchphrase lately is, you know, we got to keep 1.5 alive. I mean, to answer your question, I think I might have gotten off track, but Zurich feels that it is its responsibility to, to do all that it can to incentivize the world to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also to use our risk and engineering expertise to really help our customers and communities build resilience to this more threatening world, which we're, we've created for ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to talk uh, the risks. Everyone talks about the physical risks that accompany unabated climate change, but there are, are risks associated with the transition to a carbon-reduced economy. What are those? Yeah, the transition risks are changes in laws, in regulations, in, in public preferences or expectations which could affect a company's reputation. These are risks that companies need to monitor and anticipate. So let me just give you an example. Um, you know, we talked about carbon pricing. I mean, right now in the U.S. there is no carbon price. But if you look at the world, about 20% of emissions currently are subject to a price on carbon. So what does a U.S. company do with respect to its own emissions in anticipation of some carbon cap or tax in the future? Does it just sit back and wait or does it start reducing its greenhouse gas emissions in anticipation of that? So those are the types of transition risks that, that yeah. companies need to monitor and, and to try to anticipate. Yeah. You uh, earlier talked about some of the acute risks uh, that will manifest themselves in more severe weather and a changing landscape. You mentioned hurricanes, longer wildfire seasons, green pastures turning into deserts. And there's other things like biodiversity loss and territorial wars over dwindling resources like fresh water. It, it's, it paints sort of a post-apocalyptic future if we don't do something bold and do something now. What's your thoughts on that? 
Right? Even if we do get to net zero by 2050, temperatures are going to still rise to 1.5 degree Celsius. So that's about yeah. 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so that's that's 30% worse than what we're seeing right now, right? Because yeah. we're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial times. If we do not get to net zero by 2050, we could possibly see temperature rise by 2.7 to 3.0 Celsius by the end of the century, which would be three times worse than what we're seeing right now. Wow. So, you know, what could possibly happen? I mean, crop yields could suffer. I've read reports that, that crops will have less nutrition in them as a result of temperature rise. You know, some parts of the equator may simply become uninhabitable. Sea levels could rise to about a meter, um, which is three and a quarter feet. I read a report the other day that uh, it's estimated that one meter of sea rise could allow high tides to submerge as much as 19,000 square miles in the United States, which which basically is the the size of Vermont and New Hampshire combined. That would not only affect people living along the coast, but it also threatens coastal wetlands, sure. uh, which are near the coast, which are some of the Earth's most you know ecologically important and diverse habitats. And, and those habitats also trap large amounts of carbon. And, and again, there's other ecosystems which could break down as a result of temperature rise. You know, and as you mentioned, m much land could turn into deserts. Water supplies could be reduced. Glaciers are melting. And as the glaciers melt and disappear, the rivers and, and inland, you know, lakes and things which they support will also disappear and dry up. You know, again, our, there's there's many nightmarish scenarios, I think, that, that are being painted right now. And, and there's many predictions right now that are saying, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to keep temperature rise to 1.5 and that it's more likely the way greenhouse gas emissions you know, are currently sticking at around 40 billion tons a year, that we may not get our act together in time. And it's more likely that it's, we're going to see about 2.7 degrees Celsius temperature rise. So again, as I mentioned earlier, the catchphrase that I've been hearing is let's keep 1.5 alive. Let's yeah. keep our eyes on the prize and, and, and still try to, to reduce our emissions um, to, to keep the world in somewhat of a semblance of a natural state that we're used to. My feeling on that perfectly aligned with Zurich's um, that we need to do everything possible and engage with our customers, engage with our communities, and engage with our governments to urge them to take measures to make that happen. Yeah, there's definitely a real sense of urgency here. And on top of that, there's really no, I can't think of a catchy phrase that rhymes with 2.7. Give me some time. I, I want to thank you for those insights. We'd like to finish these podcasts with a lightning round of personal questions. So if you're ready, then I will fire away. My favorite type of question, David. Fire away. So since we're on the topic of climate, what's your top vacation based on weather? 
Well, boy, that's interesting. I could give you a dramatic answer and, and say something like, you know, the Greenland ice sheets because they might not be around much longer. But boy, you know, even a question like that is complex these days because just hopping on a plane you know, has a carbon uh, footprint. So I've started going to concerts again once the COVID restrictions started to ease up. What are you most looking forward to when the pandemic is officially over and we can move freely about? Well, I'm a musician, David, so I'm looking forward to getting out and playing some gigs. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll let you know. You could come out and see one of them. What do you play? I, pl I play guitar and I, I sing a little too. Awesome. Awesome. So you'll have to uh, uh, send me your Bandcamp work or, or you're probably on Spotify, I imagine. I ask a lot of the guests this question. Part of uh, business is taking calculated risks. What's the biggest professional risk that you took that worked out? I mentioned that I used to be a lawyer, so it was probably the biggest risk I took was leaving the practice of law and joining Zurich about 14 years ago. And, you know, it's taken me to your podcast, David, so I guess it worked out. You're too kind. You're too kind, David. <laughs> what is the most important skill a leader should develop? I'm going to say humility, which I'm not sure is a skill or, or it's a trait, but I, I think really the ability to be thoughtful, insightful, you know, and caring without egotism or arrogance, I, I think that makes a really genuine leader. Actually. That's good. I'd have to agree with you on that one. So, okay, David, that's it for today. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. And I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in to this Future of Risk podcast. I'm David Hilgen.